don't know if you knew this, but uh, we, we share the same uh, nightmare, or at least what would be a nightmare to me, uh, what, what has been a nightmare for me would be a nightmare for you. Sometimes if I uh, have not prepared as much as I, this is not a confession, uh, if I've not prepared as much as I should have or would have hoped to, uh, I could have a dream that things don't go well on a Sunday morning here in the pulpit. And, and I think, if I recall correctly, occasionally that nightmare that we would share is that I'm, I'm here not just unprepared, but unclothed, uh, which like, admittedly would be a nightmare for all of us. Uh, common nightmare, though, right? Ending up somewhere without, without clothes on and how embarrassing that is. Or maybe it's also a different type of embarrassing scenario where you show up to to a party dressed just improperly, like the kind of a, a hazing prank of, oh, this is a costume party, and you show up and know it's, it's not a costume party, and you just look like an idiot. Uh, everybody else dressed normal. But what if you were to prepare yourself for, for a, a prom or a banquet or something else, uh, only to find out that you weren't invited, that you aren't allowed in? Uh, that would be its own kind of shame and humiliation to be to be uh, to feel prepared, but to be left out. Uh, in Matthew chapter twenty-two, Jesus tells a parable about a wedding feast that a king is holding for his son, and those who are first invited they refuse to come. They show that they aren't worthy of the feast, as Jesus says. So the king's servants they went out into the roads. They gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In my mind, and perhaps in your recollection of that story, that last guest is an unexpected twist at the end of Jesus' story. But it does highlight, I think, both parts of our sermon for this morning. See, we don't want to be clothed but left outside, and we don't want to be naked and brought inside. We want to be clothed, and we want to be welcomed. Those are the two aspects that we desire. And because of our sin, those two things are exactly what we don't have on our own. We don't have the clothing that we need on our own, and we aren't welcome in God's presence. And that all began with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24 is our text this morning, continuing where Keith left off Last week, God had spoken to the serpent, then to the woman and to the man, the God of great reversals. Um, And yet, having spoken these different things, both the hope of the gospel promise that we discussed on Easter and then also the ongoing consequences of those things, and then the the narrative resumes. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Clothing and welcome, beginning with Adam and Eve. Following God's statement of judgment on each of them, Adam's actions, immediately following these things, Adam's actions demonstrate that he was still clinging to God's promise that someone would come to make things right. This is the promise that we found in chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, spoken to the serpent. The seed of the woman, a child born to her, would be their champion to defeat the serpent who had deceived them and caused them to enter into enmity with God. And when Adam named or renamed Eve... It's a play on words for the word for for life or for living, as the text says. And I think it's a reminder that he has in the way that he names her, a reminder of that promise made in the garden. Even though you will suffer in childbearing, even though I will suffer in the work, even though we will suffer for our sin, it is through you, Eve, the mother of all living humans, it is through you, all life to come, that this promise will be fulfilled. When created and brought together, the man and his wife, you remember chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then following their sin, their eyes were opened. They knew good and evil, and they were evil. And they knew that they were naked. But even more significant than just knowing that they were naked, they were ashamed, newly ashamed of being naked, which is why they tried to cover themselves and hide from God. And the leaves that they had grabbed to cover themselves, they were not sufficient. What what leaves could be, Uh, despite all the artwork that we see of either animals or leaves? It was not sufficient. So in an act of grace... Because God knew that the covering that they had taken for themselves was not sufficient. So in an act of grace, God clothed them. God provided an external covering of their bodies and their shame. He provided for them what they needed and what they couldn't provide for themselves. And this was an undeserved kindness from God. He could have, at all these points, like God didn't have to do any of the aspects of what he did. He could have just left them with their leaves to figure something else out. It's not what he did. This was an act of grace on God's part to them, to clothe them. But even graciously clothed, they still had to face the consequences for their sin. So they were driven out of the garden. It's interesting if you look at verse 22, there's this M dash there. That's what that's called, by the way. Knowing your dashes is always important. There's hyphens, there's N dashes, there's M dashes. We can discuss those more. Uh, I'd be really glad to discuss those more with you if you're interested. Uh, but that just means that the text trails off. We, we, we could even put like an ellipsis there, just that that's the dot, dot, dot. I really love punctuation. 
They still had to face this, and God's statement trails off, and then he does what must be done. Lest this thing, this other thing happen, therefore the Lord God sent them out. He forces them out of the garden. Now remember, it was in the garden where God fellowshiped with them face to face regularly. And by being forced out of that holy place, they were left with no access to the tree of life no access to the presence of God. They were clothed physically, but they were unwelcome in the presence of God. The tree of life, that's an interesting one. What is this tree of life exactly? Well, we don't really know everything about it other than just kind of the few things that we pick up. It was a tree, had fruit, and God called it the tree of life. Uh, But apparently, eating of this fruit, of this particular tree, would have resulted in a continuing bodily life. Sounds good, right? Fountain of youth, tree of life. How do we escape sickness and death and live forever? Which sounds great, but uh, those different stories, I was trying to think of some examples, and only like Pirates of the Caribbean came to to mind. I don't know if that's really the best example, but they get it, right? Living forever isn't actually what you want. You want a certain type of life forever. This seems like it's only an act of judgment on them that they would not be able to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life doesn't deal with their problem. It just extends their suffering in this life. Right? It would have been continuing bodily life, dead in their sin and separate from God. So it was an act of mercy, even while it was an act of judgment, for God to kick them out of the garden and keep them from that continuing misery of an existence. One author said this this way, Thus the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. And God knew that would not have been good. So even in this judgment, there was mercy mingled in with it. And then we see cherubim, that's a a plural. We say cherubs, but it's Hebrew, so it's cherubim. Powerful, glorious angels, not the little babies with wings. I don't know what idiot thought of that. It has nothing to do with the Bible, though. These are powerful, glorious warriors with flaming swords. They are now guarding the entrance to the garden. It's ironic, because that was the job that Adam had been tasked with to guard it and to keep it, and now he's being guarded and kept from it. These angels protected the holiness of God from sinful humanity and protected sinful humanity from the holiness of God. I think you really need to understand both of those things are happening. Right? God's holiness uh, guarded, uh, but not as if he, he can't guard himself, and that's why you need the other side of it too. Like those cherubim saying, don't come. You come, you're going to die. Guarding sinners from the holiness of God, even as guards the holiness of God from sinners. These cherubim posted here with these flaming swords were like a huge no trespassing sign hung on the door. Now, my brother-in-law, Nate, is in the army. We visited them a few years ago at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds outside of Baltimore. Uh, And he drove me around for a tour of the different installations and labs and all these different things on this base. Uh, Not a lot happens there now, but it used to be a huge development area for dangerous chemicals used in warfare. So hopefully their family's okay after a few years of living there. Uh, But I remember all over the bases were signs like this one. 
Restricted area. It is unlawful to enter this area without permission of the installation commander. While on this installation, all personnel and the property under their control are subject to search. I wish this bottom line was a little bit bigger. Use of deadly force authorized. Which with like double fences with the razor wire and then armed guards standing there is is fairly intimidating. Far more intimidating than any human soldiers would be these soldiers of heaven with flaming swords standing at the entrance to the garden. Now don't mess around. Uh, We didn't mess around, by the way. That's why I'm still here today. When God clothed Adam and Eve, though, he did so by killing animals and using their skins to, or their hides to provide clothing. Entering into this week, I was like, oh, what a great text, because now you have sacrifices. But by killing these animals, did God institute sacrifices? Many people think that's the case. When I first thought about this text, that was what I was going to preach, because that will preach, right? Uh, But is Moses hinting at that? Is that what the text is talking about? Probably not, Uh, because there are words and there are ways to reference that that would have made that very clear, and none of them are used. It doesn't really seem like that's what is happening here, that this is not the the first sacrifices. We see sacrifices in chapter 4 right after this, but I don't think that's the case. However, There is a different image that's being hinted at uh, in God clothing Adam and Eve. And for that, we really need to move forward in the Old Testament to the Old Covenant priests or the, uh, the Israelite priests that we see in the Old Covenant law. If there was one thing that the Mosaic law made very clear is that the Israelites were, and everybody else, they were an unclean, defiled people. If, you've, if you survived your readings through Exodus and Leviticus uh, without skipping or giving up this year, uh, you would be uh, probably overwhelmed by how many ways you can become unclean. This is like, I mean, I have seasonal allergies. I don't remember reading about it, but it seems like every time I sneezed, I would have to leave the camp. It doesn't say that, but it feels like that. I can hardly even fathom how often they all must have been unclean. Uncleanness was not sin, but it did point to their pervasive sinfulness. You don't just come to God. However, there was one group of people whose uncleanness was covered by the clothes that they put on, and it was the priests. The word used in Genesis for clothing Adam and Eve, it's a pretty normal word used for just all sorts of different types of clothing across the Old Testament. Uh, but that it, also, it is also the word used to refer to the special priestly garments and so it's possible that as he's writing this, he's, he's kind of casting a little bit of a, a vision forward or referencing backward, depending on which way you want to look at that, to the special priestly garments where the priests would be clothed. These priests were clothed with, I think, what we could call a symbolic righteousness. They weren't better than the people, but they had been set apart by God, and it was symbolized by this special clothing that they put on. And having been clothed in these holy garments, only these priests were allowed to very restricted access to the presence of God. This access was so restrictive, in fact, that following very elaborate rituals, only one man, the high priest, on only one day of year, what's called uh, the Day of Atonement, only he was welcome to pass through the veil into the holiest of holy places. They were clothed, but they had a limited welcome, just the priests. The book of Hebrews describes this to us. The priests go regularly into the first section of the temple 
performing their ritual duties, but into the second section of the temple, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section of the temple is still standing. Not yet opened, as in the people of God were not yet welcomed into God's presence. According to Exodus, do you know what images were woven into that veil that separated the people and even the priests from the presence of God? Images of cherubim. Woven into the curtain that separated all but that one priest that one day separated them from coming into the presence of God. And once the high priest, that one man, that one day, once he and he alone entered that most holy place and saw the Ark of the Covenant, he would be confronted with the mercy seat of God. And as we heard read this morning, providentially organized by the Lord, as we heard read this morning, what images covered the mercy seat? Cherubim. Guarding the holiness of God from a sinful people and warning a sinful people about approaching a holy God. Warning, restricted area, use of deadly force authorized. You don't just come into God's presence on your own terms. And as the history of Israel progresses, they run into even more significant problems because Solomon's temple, where there were not even just, image, not even just uh, pictures of cherubim, but huge statues of cherubim. It's just this massive display of this same idea. Very garden-like language, if you ever connect aspects of that. That's what's happening there. But Solomon's temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, and apparently the, the Ark of the Covenant is lost, captured, not buried in Egypt. Raiders of the Lost Ark? Really? Not true. Okay, and the Nazis didn't find it and none of that cool story just didn't happen. But it is lost. And when the remnant of the Israelites come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple, they put a veil up, there was no ark. There was no ark of the covenant behind the veil in the most holy place. It was empty. Tragic. They now had a restricted welcome to a God whose presence was no longer manifested in their midst at all. And this remained the case for hundreds of years. And then, in the opening paragraphs of his gospel, the Apostle John tells us that the Word, who is Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt among us, or made his dwelling among us, or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the person of Jesus, God came to earth to walk among his people once more. And he invited and welcomed all kinds of sinners to come and to be with him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Adam and Eve were sinful and naked in their shame, and so are we. The Israelites were sinful and unclean and defiled, and so are we. But consider Jesus. 
In Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says this in their description of, of our Lord Jesus. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, distinct from us in his sinlessness, and exalted above the heavens. Only Jesus among all humanity was clean and undefiled. He had no guilt before God. He had no cause for shame. He had no reason to hide. He had nothing to cover. He was clothed, as it were, in his own perfect righteousness. But the one who knew no sin became sin for us. The one, the only one who had no guilt took our guilt on himself. The one with no cause for shame took our shame. And the one who was clothed in his own righteousness was stripped naked for us physically and spiritually. He was completely exposed to the perfect justice of God. And then he took the punishment of the wrath of God toward our sin on himself. That punishment that our sins deserved was his death on the cross. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. But do not overlook that point. Your sin. You deserve to suffer what Jesus suffered on that cross. You deserve that. He did not. And if you do not look to him and trust in him for forgiveness and salvation, you will suffer the full wrath of God against your sin. But that wrath will not be found on a cross. It will be found in a lake of fire that burns forever and ever, the worm that does not die, the fire that is not quenched. There is salvation from that punishment found in no one else other than Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among humanity by which we can and must be saved. Jesus, clothed in his own righteousness, qualified to be the perfect, ultimate high priest for his people, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So because of him, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Do you see the connection of those images? Right, The veil, you must stay out. Jesus, the only one who on his own was qualified to go in, marched right through, not the, not the, not the fibrous curtain that had been found, not into an empty holy place or most holy place, but into the heavenly courts behind that veil, the veil of his flesh crossed through past the cherubim that would have guarded the holiness of God and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. 
Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, he went through, not just for his own sake. He went through to provide access for you. Jesus was stripped naked so we could be clothed. Jesus was cast out by God, forsaken by his Father. The the termination of that relationship that had existed for all of eternity, losing the favor, bearing the guilt of sin so that we could be welcomed. Only Jesus can clothe us and make us welcome in God's presence. This is the glorious, gracious offer of the gospel. On your own, naked and cast out, Jesus, clothed in his own righteousness, permanent access, but he became what we were so that we could become what he was and is. Only Jesus can clothe us and make us welcome in God's presence. There it is, in case you missed it. We are as needy and sinful as Adam and Eve were. We have no righteousness of our own. We have nothing by ourselves, of ourselves, of our own invention, of our own efforts, nothing to cover our guilt and our shame before God. Uh, Listen to the Bible explain this. Hebrews chapter 4 again. Hebrews really brings this together today. It's like the fourth Hebrews quote today. It says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, right, dissecting right into the beginning, discerning even the thoughts and intentions of the heart, of your heart. God's word cuts right through all of the excuses and all of the blame and all of the everything. It just cuts through, dissects you, and just lays you bare. And then it says, no creature, that's you, That's me. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows everything about you. He knows the things that you have done. He knows the things you haven't done, although you should have done them and knew you should have done them. God knows the things that you have said and the things that you have not said and all the things you wanted to say. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows everything that you've ever wanted to hide from everyone else. You are naked and exposed before an all-knowing God. And I see three possible responses to this. This confrontation of our sin. Just like when he comes into the garden, what is it that you have done? Already knowing the answer to that. When you're confronted by your sin, you can try to hide it. And try to cover yourself. Try to hide. Try to flee from the gaze of God. But where are you going to go from his spirit? Where are you going to flee from his presence? You go to heaven, he's there. 
Make your bed in the, the depths of hell. He's there. And take the wings of the morning, uttermost parts of the sea, already there. Wherever you will flee, he's already there waiting. And Adam and Eve tried this, right? Learn from the mistakes of others. They tried to hide in the trees. They didn't work. They tried to cover themselves on their own, and they failed. It won't work for you either. Sometimes when we know we can't hide from God, we do what we consider to be the next best thing. We hide from God's people. We know we can't hide from God, but at least we can, maybe we can try to hide from each other. Then we flee from each other. We cover ourselves with masks of fineness. Or we only talk about that one time out of a hundred this past week when things actually went okay. How's your week? How's good? Well, that one thing was good. Like the whole week was terrible. But I'm only going to tell you about that one thing because I don't want to be exposed before you in my weakness, in my failures. We starve ourselves and then we run from the food. That's one ditch that you can fall into. You can fall into that hiding your sin. It didn't work for Adam and Eve. It's not going to work for you. But there's another ditch. There's an overcorrection, very common. And that's a, a flaunting of your sin. You can pretend that you don't feel guilty. Practice your smile. You could, you could pretend that you're proud of your sin. Instead of, of hiding, you can you could come out exposing your sin and exposing your nakedness and exposing your guilt to everyone and insisting you have nothing to be ashamed of. And really, I think our, our world, our culture ends up doing that kind of like a physically, right? Like we've, we've covered, it's like, no, I don't need to cover. Like I can be naked. I have nothing to be ashamed of. Hey, look at me. I have nothing to be ashamed of. It's like the louder you insist, I think the gentleman doth protest too much. The louder you insist, the less I believe you. But we're all guilty of this. This is rampant in our world. Right? Forcing and, and tweeting and, and, and posting just everything about our sin because if we talk about it enough, then maybe we can silence our conscience. And more so by the day. And we all can be guilty of this. Right? Already, even in the phrasing that I'm, I'm using, you're probably like, oh, yep, yeah, ah, he's calling them out. Right? LGBTQ movement, right? Just flagrantly doing this. We're going to parade through your city. We're going to go to your library. We're going to go to your schools. We're going to shove this in your face because we have nothing to be ashamed of. And if you don't like it, we're going to hate you and attack you. Right? Oh, how guilty. We can, we can do that and be like, oh, yeah, they are bad. Boy, it's like, aren't we so good at them? Whoever they are, they're bad. And they are. That's wrong. And we, we have to oppose that. Like, we can't just be like, no, that's okay. It's not okay. But how are we not okay? Because it's not just them, whoever they are. We are guilty of sin, and we are guilty of flaunting. We can all be guilty, maybe not of that flaunting of sin, but of our own flaunting of sin. What might that look like? But we, can, we could look lustfully and call it admiring beauty. We can indulge our sinful flesh with our bodies. We can just call it natural. We can insist on the rightness of our anger and call it boldness. We can insist that our spouses or children go along with all of our petty demands and then call it leadership. 
We can disregard God-ordained authorities and we can call it taking a stand. We can ignore Christ's prayer and command for unity among his followers and divide ourselves from other Christians over disagreements and just call it a pursuit of truth. We are all so infected by the spirit of our age. I am. You are. Why it's... It's so important that we're together because we really only see that clearly in other people. There's always a they, always him or her or them. That church, that denomination, that body, they're the ones that are guilty, but we're not. It's not true. We must pursue a Christ-exalting unity here at our local church, here, this room, these people, among ourselves. And if we don't, we could be flaunting our sin, emboldening ourselves, silencing the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We must not fall into either of those, running from each other or, right, taking a stand, <laughs> flaunting our sin. If the final response, that middle path, there's only the middle, is confession. It's the only proper response to our sin. Humble confession before God, freely admitting we are needy and naked and guilty and shame-filled and wrong, and then, and then turning from that sin in repentance. Right? Which is the church in it, uh, the, of the seven churches? It's like, just come to me and, and buy the clothes that you need. It's not just the unbelievers who are naked, but we could, we could be uh, stripping ourselves of those type things. Come, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. Jesus says to the church, come. I have what you need. But those who think they're healthy have no need of a physician. And those who think they can see won't come to have their sight fixed. And those who think they're clothed won't come to Christ to be covered. When we confess when we admit, when we repent and turn back toward God, there's a lot of images throughout Scripture of what happens when we do this. Zechariah chapter 3. The high priest in Zechariah's day, the prophet, his name was Joshua. Zechariah receives a vision in Zechariah chapter 3 of, of Joshua being accused of his sin before the Lord by Satan himself. In this vision, it says, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, the angel of the Lord, right? This is Christ. Christ says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isaiah 61, Isaiah rejoices in the promise of God with these words, I will, re- I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Uh, Timothy, do you have your headdress ready for your what? That's what it says, the bridegroom with the headdress. I don't, he's like, what are you talking about? It's just in the text, but I don't know. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, so the Lord clothes his people. 
clothes of righteousness, garments of salvation. Or consider the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. The rebellious son casts himself out of his father's presence and ends up covered in shame and filthy garments. And when he comes to his senses and returns in humility to his father, the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate because the filthy cast off son was clothed and welcomed by the father. Brothers and sisters, my fellow believers in Christ, all of you whose faith is in Christ alone for your salvation, do you know that you are no longer naked and shamed and guilty before God? You have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This is already completely true for you in your position before God. God looks at you. He sees Jesus. You have put on Christ. Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there's that positional truth that has happened. It's also an ongoing progressive work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are being transformed from the inside out as we who are united to Christ, we put on Christ and Christ-like character and Christ-like words and Christ-like deeds. Christ-like righteousness as clothing appears in John's vision in Revelation chapter 19. Listen to this. They sing this song. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Their position in Christ becomes revealed progressively in their transformation and our transformation into righteousness. You don't try to make that and then get changed. It doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. But it's not our best efforts at being good on our own that does this. These these righteous deeds across Scripture are the visible results of the Holy Spirit transforming us to be more like Jesus. We are clothed. And we are welcomed right now. Listen to Paul. Enjoy this. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access into, by faith into this grace in which we stand. I almost went with clothing and access. I decided to go with clothing and welcome instead, but it's the same thing. An entryway, a rite of passage into the presence of God. Ephesians chapter 2, he just loves this idea. Through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access 
in or by the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So then you no longer are strangers. You aren't aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. There's no border guard that's going to stop you from entering into that kingdom. You've got the document to pass. You have a right to be there. It was purchased for you by Jesus and put into your hands and hearts by the Holy Spirit. You have access to the Father. And returning to Hebrews again, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses like a high priest who would march in on himself and then look back and be like, see, I told you it could be done, not what Jesus is like. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Clothed by our priest, like a priest who ripped open the veil and said, come to the mercy seat. Those angels have no threat for you anymore. You aren't cast out. You're not naked. You're clothed and you're welcomed. Only Jesus can and Jesus has clothed us made us welcome in God's presence. And that's not all. (laughs) We wait as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we wait with hope for the final fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. It's because now we're flesh and blood, right? And we're stained with sin. And we know it. But we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, it must put on imperishable. And this mortal body, it must put on immortality. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Then then Paul, Paul didn't, didn't say everything he wanted to say about that and other things too. So after he finished 1 Corinthians, probably another letter, then he writes 2 Corinthians, which at least came after 1st. We know that to be true. And Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 5. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, just our bodies, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. This is the nakedness of death, the, the separation of our, of our body and our, our spirit, as it were. While, while we are still in this tent, we groan, we've, we are burdened. We're burdened, not that we would be unclothed. None of us want to die. We don't want that separation. But that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What does this all mean? It means that one day every Christian will be clothed with glorified immortality. This this is not all there is, and it's not even close to the best that could be. 
It's, there's even better than just sanctification. There's the completion of a process. We will be like Jesus forever. And since we are in Jesus, and we will be fully transformed to be like Jesus, then just like Jesus, we will be welcomed into God's presence permanently. Permanently. No leaving. No being cast out. That wedding feast clothed by God. He's not going to say to you, if you're in Christ, he's not going to say, hey, where's your wedding garment? How did you get in here looking like that? No. By faith, you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're welcome. Welcomed by Christ permanently in God's presence. In God's garden where God fellowshiped with his people, what was in the middle? Uh, when, when they were cast out, what could they no longer eat from? Tree of life. We leave that tree in Genesis chapter 3, and we got to get all the way to Revelation before we hear about it again. If you need any other proof that Christ restores for us all that Adam lost for us and that we continue to lose for ourselves... And you need to look no further than Revelation chapter 22. When all is said and done, we see there the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit. I thought the one tree, one kind of fruit. No, apparently one, one tree, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree, even, were for the healing of the nations. If that's what the leaves do, what does the fruit do? No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. It's the fulfillment of the garden, guys. Through all of these different things, Adam and Eve, naked in their sin, but clothed by God, just that hope of a promise. Clothed but not welcomed. So they weren't really clothed enough. And then those priests, right? Clothed but restricted welcome. And then Jesus stripped naked and cast out so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and we could, in his name, be welcomed into that now and forever. King Jesus himself told John to write to us, to you, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Clothing and welcome. By the grace of God, we will eternally be clothed by God and welcomed by God. Is that is that a promise that you have received? Are you going to try on your own more? It has not worked, and it's not through lack of effort. You just can't cover your own shame. Jesus can. You can't do enough good things to be welcomed into the presence of God, but Jesus did. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor in Scotland in the 1800s, died a couple months before his 30th birthday. 
Yet his passion for souls, his longing to know Christ, made a profound impact that lingers to this day. Among his writings is a poem that Lowell Wilkes shared with me a few years ago. At a close, I want to read two stanzas of that poem to you. When this passing world is done, when has set yon glaring sun? When I stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before thy throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. Father, we deserve to be left naked and cast out, but Jesus suffered that for us. In his name, we are clothed and welcomed. You have undone for us everything that Adam and Eve caused and that we continue. You are the only savior of your people. Help us to love the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith. Help us to not glory in our sin to try to clothe ourselves, humility to receive what is offered freely. Thank you for that welcome, which is eternal. May we live for that and long for it. Amen.